Alexia Gordon, author of the Gethsemane Brown Mysteries, published by Henry Press, and the host of the Cozy Corner podcast, part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Katrina McPherson joins me in the Cozy Corner today. Katrina is the author of two series, The Dandy Gilver Mysteries and The Lexi Campbell Mysteries, as well as, well as several standalone suspense novels. The most recent standalone, Strangers at the Gate, is available from October 22nd in the U.S. Dandy Gilver number 13, A Step So Brave, is available from November 5th. Welcome, Katrina. Thank you for having me. Lovely to talk to you. Always a pleasure. Uh, you write two series, one historical and one humorous contemporary, plus almost a dozen standalone novels. How do you manage all that? Is it really a dozen? Oh, yeah, there is, because there's two early ones that don't sort of count. But yeah, you're right, yeah, it's almost a dozen. Um, how do I cope with all that? Do you know, to be, to be really honest, Alexia, what it was was that when I had a proper job, I was so bad at it and I was so unhappy at it that I left, even though I left in, I left at the end of 2000, which is a long time ago now, I can still remember what it felt like to be doing the wrong thing. And on any given day that helps me just spit on my hands and do what needs to be done to be a writer. Because I, I still love it in comparison. But I find it hard to believe you were ever bad at anything. Oh God, yeah, it was shocking. I just, I didn't get it. I so... I mean, can you imagine someone doing a fairly high-status job that they're manifestly not suited for? Let's not even go there. Let's not go there. Let's just stay in cozy corner. But no, I wasn't. I, I didn't get it. I didn't. I understood. I was a linguistics professor, and I understood linguistics, and I understood teaching, and I loved the students. I could not wrap my head around working in a university department. I didn't get it. I couldn't. I couldn't decipher the politics and the, you know, just the. I didn't know what what it was that people. I didn't understand the stakes that people had. I didn't understand the factors in every meeting. I could feel the atmosphere, but I didn't know what was going on. Oh, I was. I really, really hated it. Well, I'm, we're all glad you turned to crime writing then. No, oh, me too. Thank you. That's very kind. Now, I refer to your standalones as suspense novels. Is that how you describe them? Oh, do, do you know? Well, I describe them as um, standalone suspense domestic noir psychological thrillers because they just use all the words. Then you know that the words you need are going to be in there. Or do you know? I've got a new actually. I've got a new description for them based on the jackets. Um, if you imagine the archetypal jacket of a domestic noir, noir standalone suspense psychological thriller standalone novel, okay? I call them now, where's she off to now, books? Because <laughs> there's always, there's always a woman on the cover and she's always walking away. So that's what, I'm trying to get that started. Where's she off to now? She used to wear a red coat, she's not wearing a red coat anymore, but she's still going somewhere. Where's she off to? So that's what I that's what I call them. But maybe if the once the publisher hears that, they'll probably I might get a stiff email telling me not to say that anymore. Ah, it's just good fun. <laughs> I think you should hashtag that actually. What a good idea! Yes, I think I will. I think I will. The next time I put my book jacket online, which will be tomorrow. Let's face it, because I'm in the middle of of shameless promo for this book. Uh, I'm going to do that. Yeah. Uh, speaking of your suspenseful domestic psychological 
thriller, Strangers at the Gate. Uh, to me, it has kind of a gothic meets Hitchcock meets masterpiece mystery feel. So what oh. were your influences while you were writing it? I love it. Um, my influences while I was writing it mostly came from landscape, to be honest. It's set in a... It's set in a so they were outside of fiction. I can't think in terms of a... Let me just check whether that's true. Yes, I think it is. The, I, I didn't think in terms of where, where the book fitted into the genre or into the tradition of suspense. I will take Hitchcock and Masterpiece Theatre every day, though. <laughs> um, it came from thinking about Scotland, my old country, um, and making up a fictitious valley that's so narrow and deep that it gets no sunlight at all in the in the winter months, which and there are places like that in Scotland. And just what it would feel like to move there from a city, I mean, not uh, not Vegas, you know, Edinburgh, but still streetlights. Um, what it would feel like to move to a small town with no sunshine um, and terrible mobile phone reception in the middle of winter. So I just I thought myself into that uh, dark place, which doesn't really answer your question. Sorry. Uh, although it, it does. The, I mean, the place influenced it, and just from that description, I promised I would be terrified to live in a place like that. Yeah. Well, I remember. I I, I don't. I've never. I lived in a city when I was a student. Um, but I come from a small town, but I'd never lived in the real deep, dark countryside until we moved to the countryside in 1996. And some of my, and it was dark, you could see the Milky Way, the sky was absolutely black. And some of my, some of Finney's experiences in the book are my early experiences, like not, not, not recognising the screech of a vixen, which is very human and traumatizing to hear if you've never heard it before a vixen screaming at night and also an owl um uh which i thought was was some kind of un, unearthly uh supernatural creature that was coming straight for me because i i thought oh what's that noise and turned my torch what you'd call a flashlight beam up and annoyed this owl, so it decided to dive on me through down through the, the light. And it, it just came straight for me, and they're quite big when they're close. Um, so I gave that experience to Finney, of suddenly being in a very isolated cottage in the pitch black, surrounded by trees. Which, which, you know, when you look into trees at night, you see the trees behind the trees, but they look as if they're moving because of perspective and geometry. And so it really does look as if there are people flitting around in the dark. Yeah, I I loved it. She hates it, but I I loved living in the in the countryside. With yeah, them. I'm not, I'm not really a fan of the countryside. I'm I'm just thinking of the talons that you know, owls kill small animals. So I wouldn't really want one coming at my head. No, no, I didn't enjoy it either. I learned never to to shine a torch beam up underneath an owl again. I only did that once. Um, but the first time we that the very first night that or maybe the first night or second night when we moved to that house, we went outside to drive to civilization and get, you know, some kind of disgusting pizza that was available 25 miles away. And uh, because, you know, I'm saying isolated, isolated for a tiny wee country like Scotland, not isolated like Montana, where I mean, you can't get very far away from anything in Scotland. But it was so dark outside, we couldn't find the car. 
And so we thought we'll go back and get a torch. And we turned around and it was so dark we couldn't see the house. So we were just stumbling around in the blackness. Um, but we, you know, we got used to it. We got, we didn't get organised. We never kept torches anywhere, but we got used to stumbling around. Nobody would see anything, so it was okay. We never fell over. We did used to have tadpoles coming out the faucets sometimes, because the water just came down off the hill. It was delicious, but it just ran down the hill through the house and out again. And every so often there'd be a fat tadpole that would get stuck in the tap. Barely <laughs> like no, it had a UV filter, but they didn't seem to mind that. <laughs> Maybe it wasn't working properly, but we survived and we don't live there anymore. <laughs> we just had that big power out, you know, in, in California here. Yeah. PGE said, prepare for a week. And I thought, oh God, I can't even stand that. But it was only 20 hours in the end. But our water went off because we've got a well, because we still live out in the country, in California. Oh. And uh, so it all got a bit real there. I think I'm getting soft now. I'm I'm a bit of a convenience junkie from living <laughs> in your lovely your lovely country where everything's always open and everything's available. This 20-hour power cut uh, was not fun. <laughs> no, it's not. When you get used to streetlights, you're used to streetlights. <laughs> oh yeah, we haven't got any streetlights. I wouldn't go that bad. But we we've, we've usually got water, um, <laughs> which is nice. Now, in a place that's not quite so dark, and uh, the setting for us, A Step So Grave, which is your 13th in Gilver Mystery. Uh, yeah. It's set in the 1930s, and it's full of aristocrats and country manners and witty dialogue, which is reminiscent of reminiscent of, of Agatha Christie or one of the other crime writers from the golden age of detection fiction, detective fiction in the 20s and 30s. So is this intentional? Were you inspired by, by the detective fiction of, of that era? Oh. In this case, absolutely. The first, so the first Dandy Gilbert that I wrote, I wrote it in uh, 2002, I think. And it was when, I mean, I don't know, I've never asked you this, if you've got a first novel that you had to, that you loved and thought was perfect and then you had to give up and put it in a drawer. But when I put my first novel in a drawer and gave up after 40 rejections, I thought, oh, I just need a little confidence booster. Now, what do I love? What do I wish that there were more of? What might, and no one's ever going to see it. I'll just write it for me. It'll be a secret. And I absolutely loved the Golden Age detective stories of the 20s and 30s. So, Niall Marsh and Marjorie Allingham, Agatha Christie, and Dorothy Seattle Sayers, of course, and also Michael Innes, who's a favourite of mine. So, I absolutely sat down to see if I could do uh, what they, you know, even though I'm now, if I could put myself back into the past and try and write one of those books. And now I've written 13 because my little secret palette cleanser went quite well, which is lovely. So what's what's the challenge of channeling the golden age while keeping the story relatable to contemporary readers? Oh, yeah, it's tough. It's it's tough. What else have I tried? Psychiatric nursing, no thanks. It's not <laughs> tough. It's easy. However, one of the toughest bits of this very easy job um, is that... Well, there's two differences. The one that, that they were writing just after the end of the First World War, and they didn't talk about it. They, their books were an escape from the horror of that and, and the influenza pandemic. And, you know, then there was the the Depression, the Great Recession. And so they were, they knew all that and they didn't put it in their books. But I, I can't miss it out. I'm writing about these people and I find that I can't not 
take account of the fact that there are a lot of spinsters, spinster ladies, because their sweethearts died, or the men who would have become their sweethearts had died, and a lot of shell-shocked men. And I'm just, so I was born in 1965, and I'm just old enough to, so that when I was a wee girl, those women who never married were still alive, and they were still running everything. They were tremendous. You know, they, they organised the church and the brownies and the guides and the, the schools and everything in the village that I come from. So I loved them. And I, I remember the day that it occurred to me why there were so many of these women. Because um, in 19, you know, 1970 by then, they were still there. So that's one thing that I do take account of the war. And, and you better believe I take account of what's coming in 1939 because I can't, they didn't know, they feared that it was coming, but I know it's coming. And it's like a drumbeat. Um, and I think the other thing that I can't do is, I don't know if you've read, especially Dorothy L. Sears, who I do adore, but the casual racism and anti-Semitism in her books is, is quite hard to stomach now. So I do this thing where, because I am a woman and I, I get to find the line, I let there be the kind of sexism that there would have been. You know, I let that be authentic. And because I'm Scottish, Dandy Gilver is English, but she's married to a Scot. Because I'm Scottish, you know, you get to laugh at your own people. So I, so I have a bit of fun with that. And I'm also a working class person. So I let her be as big a snob as she would have been because she's an aristocrat so I let her do that but I don't have any truck with the eminently possible anti-semitism racism and homophobia that might have been there in her and certainly in some of her uh, contemporaries because that's not my line to find um, and also do you know I think well here I am a, you know uh a working class Scottish girl who got a PhD and I'm now a writer and I live in California. It's like the things that were my challenges are not as severe as they were. But I don't think that's true for, you know, racism and anti-Semitism and, and homophobia. So I just stay away from them. I mean, I don't, I don't make everyone a paragon of virtue. I just stay away from it. So that's, that's a difference for me. I couldn't, I couldn't do it. Because I think, I, I mean, I'm, I'm serious about my writing and I, even though some of my books aren't serious, I'm serious about them. But I still think people matter more than stories when you get right down to it. Here ended the lesson. There you go. That's not you. Well, you asked. What, what are you going to do? You asked. <laughs> I, yes, but it was an excellent answer. That's, that's why I, I didn't interrupt. That was, that was an excellent answer. Um, well, you, you did remind when you were talking about the, the Spencers, there's a podcast called uh, The She Done It Show, where one of the uh, episodes is devoted to the surplus women, who are the women who uh, never that's married it, after the war because most of the yeah. marriageable men were dead. We're dead. Yeah, that's what they were called, wasn't it? Surplus women. That's all. That's, that's awful. Yeah, they were. They were the what the the ones the women that I knew as a child. They were tremendous, and they seemed happy. They seemed happy in a way that mothers and grandmothers didn't seem happy. Now go figure, right? Let's ponder that. There's a sort of 
um, playfulness and, and a, a willingness to be delighted by things about them, even though I mean, their lives must have been hard. Uh, but yeah, certainly they didn't seem like sad women to me, not a one. Now, um, now when, when you uh, write, do you focus on one series or standalone at a time, sort of writing a, a given book from start to finish before moving on to the, the next? Or do you jump from Dandy to Lexi to standalone and write multiple uh, books simultaneously? Well, so, sort of a bit of both. I write a draft. I write a first draft of one book with nothing else except if page proofs come in so you've just got to check things over that the publisher might have sent back I'll, I'll just stop but I can't write um I can't be working on a first draft of say a modern standalone like you'd say Strangers of the Gate in the morning and then do a couple of hours of page proofs of Dandy Gilver checking the semicolons in the afternoon very monolithic about it but once that first draft's done I, I find it really helpful to print it out and then just leave it sitting on my desk and do something else entirely from start to finish. So I'll maybe, I've got a monster edit sitting on my desk at the moment actually, which is the biggest edit I've ever, well, I've, I've tried, well, no, I'm not going to say that, I've tried, well, I've said it too late. I decided to do something structurally quite ambitious for me, not actually structurally ambitious, just for me, you know, and it, and it worked and my editor's happy with it but while I was concentrating on weaving these voices together some of the other things I would normally be doing fell by the wayside so I've got a big edit to do and I know that that's going to be something I have to just focus on completely um, and immerse myself in. Is that, is that how you do it? Do you Do you do one thing till it's done and then do something else? Well, right now I've only written books in one series, but I do have a, a standalone that I'm playing through. So I, I, in between rounds of edits, I did an outline. Uh, I took advantage of one of my long flights for a business trip to do an outline for the new one that I'm working on. But oh. And now my next round of edits for my series is due next week. So when I turn that in, I'll have a little while where I can try and flush out my outline a little more and maybe get some pages written, or at least a yeah, I don't. I don't outline, and I think maybe if I outlined, I'd be able to be less, um, what's the word, hysterical about it. <laughs> I think that's probably the word. But what you said, I love, I love working on long plane journeys. It's great, because it's so you're so cocooned and nobody can get you, nobody can ask you for anything. You just have to pass your trash to the aisle and that's it. Yes. You know, so I, I do, it's a great place to do the initial thinking, um, especially in the window seat, just look out in the clouds. I agree, I agree with you about that. I'm very interested to think that, oh, you're doing a standalone. Try to right, I'm not, not going to meddle. I don't know if you're like me. I'm, I'm so furtive about what I'm writing until it's finished. I don't talk about it. <laughs> at all, so I don't you know. Don't answer any questions about it until until that first draft's out. And then I'll talk about it. Then it's kind of bulletproof. But um, I wouldn't, you know. I, I just want to say I use. I quite often want to say to um, beginning writers, well, don't don't just don't 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 tell anyone. Don't talk about it. Just keep it keep it a secret between you and the characters until they're all born and it's all done because you can't embarrass yourself it doesn't really matter it's no, no one's going to see it that's true but it's I not my business 
I try and talk about it just enough so that somebody can hold me accountable for doing it, but not so much that... Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's a good idea. So so you put it out there that you're doing it and what your deadline is. I've, yeah, I've done that. said, I'm going to finish this. I'm going to start a book and I'm going to finish it by this date. Hey, do you know what's really funny? When someone says, you know how people say when you're a writer, are you are you writing anything? And you say, yes, always, because you're a writer and that's the only way it works. But I, I had a couple of times I happened to be, I can't remember where I was, but out in public. Uh, and I said, oh, yeah, I started a book yesterday and got this really kind of cross-eyed, astounded-looking face. So, well, what, what, what do you mean? I said, I started Tuesday night, so I started yesterday morning. I started a new one. And it was, have you ever had that? Kind of people being quite... I said, well, how else could it happen? You've got, on one day, you have to start, and on one day, you have to finish. Why? Why is it more... It's surprising that I started a new book yesterday morning than that I started a book 12 weeks ago. I didn't, I never understood, but it was it was two different people on that same day that said, or maybe, you know, maybe they were just thinking, really, after that last one, you're doing another one? Okay. <laughs> but I'm pretty sure I know what it was. So that if that ever happens again, I, I am going to press them on it and say, what is it that you're reacting to? That's weird. <laughs> hey, they think the book's just sort of bring forth completely finished? Uh, yeah, oh yeah, there was there was one, I won't, I won't say, I won't give any identifying uh, features to when this inter- interaction was in case the person hears the interview, but there was someone who just said straight out to me a few years ago uh, something that it was lucky that I could drop everything and go somewhere because I, because I don't work. And I sort of knew what they meant, I mean I don't have, you know, I don't clock on. Um, but then when I said, when the Tour de, Tour de France was going through this little village in Galloway where we lived, when we lived in Scotland, and uh, someone said, oh, do you want to come and come and watch the Tour de France and go for a cup of coffee? And I said, I can't, I'm working. And she said, oh, great, you've got a job. And I said, yeah, I've got a job, I'm a writer. And she said, oh, well, you can, well, you can come out then. And I said, no, I can't because I'm working. And it was this absolute inability to understand that you don't get a relief writer, you know, if you go off and do something else <laughs> instead, you've got to actually just sit and do it. And I know you must, you must get that, right? Okay. Yeah, I've, I've had a few people tell me that, oh, I could write a book if I had time. Like, Oh, that's the only thing that's missing. Oh, it's the only thing that's ever missing, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's like, you know, I've got the same 24 hours you've got, and I'm also here yeah. at the day job, so just saying. Yeah, absolutely. Those people usually yeah. end up as victims in my novels, but that's another story. <laughs> I've never done that. I've, I've actually never done that. I've got a, a, um, a close friend, again, I can't identify her, who did it really specifically to uh, um, a real estate development lawyer. <laughs> um, she lives in a big city. And she um, she made him into a severed head. <laughs> she made a severed head absolutely recognisable to anyone who'd ever met the guy. <laughs> That's brilliant. So, uh, severed he- severed heads aside, um, how how is writing a, a more suspenseful novel like Strangers at the Gate uh, so different than writing a more traditional mystery like A Step So Grave? Oh, yeah. I think they're more similar than they look from the jackets. You know, they look miles apart. But I think um, 
I don't think I have to tie everything up quite so neatly in a, a modern, uh, realistic, I mean, these are real people. There's Dandy Gilver, I mean, she's real to me, but she's not real. She wouldn't have the money that she's got. She's, you know, it's not at all clear why they're not in desperate financial straits as they probably would be if they were aristocrats in the, in the mid-30s. Um, and there's that initial, I mean, there's that one thing that we that we accept, we Golden Age fans, that there is going to be a private detective who solves a murder. I don't know if that's ever happened. You know, there's going to be either an amateur sleuth or a private detective that solves a murder. So that's the thing that I let happen. Um, but I have to let the police in to the the modern ones, to the the more realistic ones at some point. But that, I love that because that means when it gets to the boring bit about witness statements and evidence and things, I just hand it all over to the cops and uh, epilogue and I'm out. So I'm interested in the in what's going on in people's minds in these books, not in how they catch or what they do to the person after they've caught them. So it, yeah, it feels, I, I quite enjoy that. I don't think I could write a police procedure. In fact, I know I couldn't write a police procedure or a legal thriller, or a forensic thriller, or anything where you have to actually know anything. <laughs> uh -uh. Not for me. Well, you're, you obviously do some research though, so, so how does your approach to research differ between your contemporary novels and your Danny Gilbert series? Well, I do do some research. Um, I do do a lot of making it up, because if you, if you make it up with enough gusto, everybody just goes with it and no one ever questions you about any of it so I do make things up um, but I'm quite honest about what I've made up I usually put a little note in saying what I've made up um, the research the research for Dandy Gilver is, is almost all uh, about the setting initially so I go to the place and just sit there I don't do don't do anything that looks like research I just look as if I'm on a short break in a nice bed and breakfast and I'm walking about hills or you know I'm looking I'm I'm going to well I went to the circus a lot for one of them and that didn't look at all like research just going to the circus um but it's just it just seeps in whereas the research for the uh for strangers at the gate is much more specific and it comes after I've written it so I write it and I make it all up and then sometimes even I admit that I've got to check whether any of the stuff I've made up is possible. And so I do quite efficient, just not not exactly Googling, because I don't like what you get from Google, but going into a, like a local library in a town in Scotland and, and trawling through their press clippings and speaking to the archivists and asking some questions about I'm going to look at things. Um, what did I have to research for strangers? Well, I had to research what a deacon would do, a full-time, I mean, I know that you are a deacon, but a, a full-time professional deacon, so sort of like a, a social worker with a peculiar uniform, I suppose, in the modern Church of Scotland. So I did some um, research into that, but that was after I'd written the book and after I'd written everything that Finney did as a deacon. In the first in her city parish, and then in her uh, her week. So the the whole book set over the course of a there's a there's a bit there's before that's a prologue, and then there's a week, um, seven full days, and then there's a little short epilogue. So there's not a great deal of her 
professional life, but I had to know something to make it realistic. And her husband's a, a solicitor, a lawyer, so I had to find out some stuff about that. I think that was all, actually. I don't think there was anything else. Oh, there was, but I can't talk about it because of spoilers. <laughs> now, when I when I read that that uh, Finn was a deacon, I of course immediately thought Episcopalian, which would translate to Anglican, which would translate to Church of England, which is absolutely not the Church of Scotland. No, which is Presbyterian. No. So what yes. le- what, <laughs> what led you to choose a Presbyterian deacon as the protagonist? Oh, do you know? I have no idea. I knew that her for the purposes of the plot. I thought her husband had to be a lawyer. And I, I've just recently, I found the early notes that I was making when I was doing this, uh, you know, when I was in Scotland and I was down in the borders uh, in the pine forests, thinking, what's this book about then? Who are these people? And I thought that she had all kinds of jobs in my head. Um, so, I don't know, I hope I can remember some of them now. Uh, so she was going to be something like, she was going to be a website designer. And I thought that maybe she could work as a theatre manager. So, I mean, completely wildly different from what she ended up as. And I, I honestly can't remember why I eventually thought she's going to be, she's going to snag this full-time position as a, a you know, there's a, a couple of years of hard money and then her job has got to become self-supporting and, and a lot of her time is spent on secondment from the church working for a, a an adoption charity uh, that deals with difficult to place uh, children. And I, I cannot remember where that came from. And now it seems unthinkable that she would ever have been anything else. Um, I will, I'll let you know if I, if it comes back to me, why she's a, well, oh no, I, I've remembered. <laughs> Just keep, keep talking, wait for the brain to catch up. I was, I, I do remember now because I wanted to, I decided that I wanted her to be someone who was good, like you deacons are. I, did, I wanted her to be, because I thought, and I can't remember why I thought this, but I thought I've never written, I've never really written about goodness, about someone who's, you know, a force for good. And I thought, well, what's she going to be? She could be a social worker. Oh God, that's going to be a lot of research. Um, she could be, I, I thought she could maybe just be someone who, I was thinking of Deborah Lacey, who works for the Gates Foundation, you know, who, um, and I thought, no, that's going to be, that's too, I want her to have more face-to-face interaction with people than that. And I was walking around the town that um, Simmerton in the book is based on, and there was the the local parish church of Scotland and their fundraising appeal for something that I can't remember now. And I thought, oh, wouldn't that be, wouldn't that be interesting if she moved to this small town into a ready-made community? Um, and she is a just a good person. Um, she's not a snarky biatch like most of us. She, and then she is in the end, but you know, she didn't start that way like many of my heroines. Yeah. And it was hard. It's much easier to write about bad people. <laughs> That's a good line. <laughs> well, I think so. Uh, uh, speaking of the of the small town, uh, Summerton, uh, when I was 
reading Strangers at the Gate, Edgar Allan Poe was another author who who came to mind with the, the descriptions um, of darkness and the claustrophobia and the strange things attacking you in the dark. Uh, so <laughs> given that it, it'll be, actually this episode will air the day before Halloween. So can you recommend some spooky stories for our listeners? Ooh, stories, like stories rather than movies. Let's have a go. Well, I am a massive uh, Stephen King fan. I'm a huge Stephen King fan. I, I'm trying so hard not to read his new one. I'm trying to save it for the Christmas holidays. Um, but I can see it. It's in the room that I'm in right now and I might not make it. So I would think you couldn't go wrong with Pet Cemetery if you really like uh, a jump scare. Uh, but it traumatised me when I was a child. I, I mean, I read it too young. Um, so, and I think that Daphne du Maurier, if you, maybe even the birds, the short story, you could read the short story and then watch the film and then try and try and have a scholarly discussion about it to calm down before bed. That would be, that would be a good one. What else has terrified me recently? Oh, here we go. Alex Marwood, um, the, the Killer Next Door. It's not supernatural. It's just blah. It's just really frightening. Um, but specifically with ghosts in. Hmm. Can I have a film instead of a book? Sure. How about the others? Oh, I, I find love that. that. Yeah, I find that unsettling. Or who? Here's the. How disgraceful is this? How about Quiet Neighbours? That's another one of mine. <laughs> but it is, it, it is, uh, it's about someone who lives in a cottage in a graveyard in a small town in Scotland, of course. Um, and it's, uh, yeah, it's got some, it's got some shivers in it. Excellent. Mm. I'm too chicken to read. I can't, I'm too cowardly to read much out and out horror. I read Stephen King because I love him, but I, I do scare myself dreadfully um, when I read them. <laughs> so, so did you scare yourself writing the atmospheric scenes in Strangers at the Gate? Absolutely, yes. I, I, yeah, I completely did. I, I freaked myself out badly a couple of times um, when I was, because I still live, like I say, I still live out some quite an isolated um house and my husband travels a lot so I'm often here alone and it's you know it's dark and it's a dirt road um so I and there are a lot of noises it's usually gophers but you know there are some noises yeah I did I did frighten myself I frightened myself writing the scenes when she goes to the if you've read it when she goes to the the other house the house that's uh, shut that we hear about right from the start this house called Jerusalem um so everybody talks about it and I, th I think, well, you've made a contract with the reader, haven't you? If you talk about this burned out shell of a house, then at some point you've got to go there. And it was based on a real place uh, which hadn't been burned out. It was just derelict near where I used to live. And I really did freak myself out writing those scenes um, to, to a ridiculous extent because I was fine. I was sitting in a nice, comfortable study uh, with a phone. But yeah, I did. I did frighten myself. I tell you, I went and frightened myself trying to find a. Um, wait a minute, is this a different book? Oh, this is a different book. 
I was trying to find a title for the next Dandy Gilver and I ended up reading Deuteronomy. Now, I don't know when you last read Deuteronomy from start to finish, but it is quite insistently, um, uh, what would I say, negative would be a kind way to put it. It is very unsettling because there's a lot of it. And there's a kind of drumbeat of repetition of the things that, that the writer of Deuteronomy or the scribe of Deuteronomy was interested in. That's the last time I scared myself. The Bible. Yeah. Unsettling is a good word. I could think of some others like yeah. uh, bloody and frightening and terrifying. That's yeah. The, yeah. Deuteronomy is the, the favorite of people who go around quoting things like witches should be burned and so. Yeah. I mean, I knew about Leviticus. He's famous for it. But I honestly did not know uh, that Deuteronomy was quite so far down the same road. Yeah. So that was, I had to stop in the end. And I didn't get a title. I couldn't find a title in the whole of Deuteronomy. So yeah. I'm still looking for a title for that book. Titles are hard. Oh, are. titles are hard and you've made a rod for your own back because you've, you've got... When are you going to run out? That's. I mean, I'm not... I shouldn't sound as gleeful as that. I hope you never run out. But <laughs> I, but I do think... I do. I have got a sense of relief every time you, you talk about a new book. I think, oh, oh she's got a new, she's got another one. Good. Phew. Good. <laughs> I would be, I would be kind of scared. I would be worried. <laughs> I can start adding, I can start adding flats and sharps to the notes, and it, it, okay. it expands yeah. the, uh, the range a bit. <laughs> I find that, and I didn't think up the title "Strangers at the Gate." I that was from uh, the U.S. editor at Minotaur. Uh, she was. And she's not my editor anymore. She, my editor, uh, left the company, and you know, I got a new editor, and she was already planning to leave when she got me. So she wasn't around for long. I, I got on really well with her, and I miss her. Um, but the one thing she did do in the short few months that she was my editor was come up with this brilliant title when everybody else was stumped. I was completely stumped. Well, no, I had a title that I loved, but no one else liked it. So I let it go. Now, um, <clears throat> speaking of titles, where, where can people buy your titles? Oh, well, anywhere they should be. They're available for pre-order now and, you know, Amazon and uh, Barnes & Noble and IndieBound and your favourite local bricks and mortar bookshop, minus the Avid Reader in Davis, California. Um, it's already out in the UK. It came out uh, in September and I've already had a, I was over there and I had a launch party there. So it's available in, you know, Waterstones and Amazon UK and your favourite local bricks and mortar bookshop in Britain, which for me is in Scotland. Um, the bigger book, oh God, I forgot the name. Uh, Atkinson Price in Bigger and in London, Goldsboro Books in Charing Cross Road. So just, you know, wherever, thankfully, yeah. And I noticed on your website there's the cover for Dandy Gilbert number 14, The Turning Tide. When's that one going to be available? Yeah, that one, well, with luck, that one's going to be next year because Quercus, thank you, Quercus, have picked up the series in the US again. Dandy's had a very sedate, uh, measured, kind of dull publishing life in London, but it's been all kinds of thrills and spills over here. So I'm very pleased that Quercus have picked up the series again. And I would assume that the turning tide will be out a year after this first one. Um, 
and I, then I, this the the book that I was hoping to find a title for in Deuteronomy is the one after that. It's finished, except for those all important words that go on the jacket. We haven't got them yet. And speaking of uh, next year, you're going to be the actually it's the year after next, 2021. You'll be the guest of honor at Left Coast Crime in Albuquerque. Yeah, I know. I'm going to be the Toastmaster at VoucherCon in Sacramento next year, which is lovely. Uh, it's just up the road. And I'm going to be the American guest of honour, don't laugh, at uh, Left Coast Crime in Albuquerque. So I'm looking forward to that. And I've already started buying clothes. Oh. Um, yeah, I've got a dress with cactuses on it. Cacti on it. And I'm not alone because Chris Zagorski, who's the fan guest of honour, um, who's a, I mean, I guess he's a mutual friend. You know Chris, don't you? Yes. Yeah, from Bolo Books. He has started laying in cactus-adorned garments already, so I, I'm going to have to uh, concentrate quite hard. And Kelly Garrett as well is uh, the... Now, what is she? I think she's the Toastmaster. So it's going to be a lot of fun. I'm looking forward to it. That sounds great. And, and where else can readers uh, find you? Uh, well, I'm at the Avid Reader on the 25th Friday, which is in Davis, California. I'm in Sacramento on the 5th of November. I am going up into the mountains, into the, the Gold Hills, to a little library called Arnold Library on the 12th of November, which is just heaven up there. Um, and then I am going to shut my door and work. I'm going to get two first drafts out before left coast crime in san diego next year i have no oh wait a minute no i'm going to be the guest of honor at um sleuth fest next march but from mid-november until the end of march in florida nothing i'm i'm door shut bum on seat fingers on keyboard and do the other bit i am looking forward to florida that'd be perfect yeah, I think that'd be great. Yeah. And well, you you were at Left Coast Crime when it was in Hawaii, weren't you? Yes. You, yes. I was just in the sea the whole time. I was kind of pruny when I was on panels because I only got out of the water if <laughs> I had to go, had to go and sit on a panel. And I am I'm planning to have dry hair and a kind of salt crust on me <laughs> when I'm the guest of honour at Sleuth Fest because the water's just heaven down there. And, and while you're in your writing cave in between November and March, where can readers get their Katrina fix online? Oh, well, yes, I will be. I'll be blogging um, at least one Tuesday a month with Femme Fatale. Um, and I blog two Thursdays a month with as one of ten in seven criminal minds. We're not maths geniuses. And um, I'm on Facebook at Katrina McPherson and I'm on Twitter at Katrina McP because my name's too long and I've got my website katrinamcpherson.com I bob in there every so often put pictures on um, of where I've been if I do so I'll get caught if I do come out and kick up my heels I'll be caught so I am I am around and it's all very straightforward just my name will find me there isn't there's a Katrina McPherson who's a Welsh academic I think she's um a geologist or an archaeologist and she sometimes gets some of my stuff and always thinks that whatever's in the works for me sounds like more fun than whatever's in the works for her. Poor thing. And can readers sign up for your newsletter on your website? Oh, thank you, Alexia. Yes, I'm such a publicist's dream. Yes, 
I can, yes, you can, I think on my Facebook page and on my website, there's a sign up for my very occasional uh, newsletter, but I do, I will put uh, the first, first revelations, I can't say reveals because it's a verb, not a noun. I'm not using the grammar, I can't use the word reveal as a noun. The revelation of a um, title and book jacket and and things usually go into my newsletter first in gratitude to the people who signed up for it. So yes. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for joining me today in the Cozy Corner, Katrina. Thank you, Alexi. It's lovely to talk to you. So my guest today was Katrina McPherson, author of the Dandy Gilver Mysteries, the Lexi Carmichael Mysteries, and Strangers at the Gate, an eerily suspenseful standalone. This has been Alexia Gordon, author of the Gethsemane Brown Mysteries. Thank you, listeners, for joining us in the Cozy Corner, part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Until next time, goodbye.